So, Bob, whenever you come over to my house, my dog mauls you, and then we proceed because you love dogs and sure. dogs love you. Hmm. And then we proceed to, you know, talk to the dog, give the dog attention. I somehow figure out a way to separate the dog from you so you can sit down in front of a microphone and we can talk to the listeners because the listeners love you as well. Oh, well. The listeners are, you know, essentially emotionally just like my dog. When you come on the podcast, they jump up in your face, maybe sniff the crotch, maybe not. So let's uh, read some uh, patron emails and respond to them. What do you say? That sounds good. This is the Psychology and Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. And I'm your friend, Bob. I'm a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. And this first email is from an anonymous patron. She says, do you know of any empirical research or have any thoughts on choosing the gender of a therapist? Oh. What prompted this question, though, is that I have a female friend who has a very negative dynamic with her mother. She recently told me she would never see a female therapist. Meanwhile, I have a hard time imagining seeing a male therapist myself. Likewise, I know a few men who have said they could never see a female therapist or could never see a male therapist and usually cite their relationships with their mother or other women as to why. They all back it up with similar logic, but with seemingly no pattern in the conclusion, whether it's male or female. I guess it's because while I have trouble with closeness in my relationship, my healthiest relationships are with my female friends or other female family members. While I have had healthy relationships with men, my experience has been that their capacity for strong displays of emotion, rumination, etc., is minimal. So I guess I just assume that even though a therapist is male, that very important aspect could be lacking. Also, I'm a straight female, and it makes sense to me to eliminate any possibility of romantic feelings in such a personal relationship. Curious about your thoughts. Bob, what do you think? I don't know of any empirical data on uh, gender choice. I never heard anybody research. I never heard anything about it. Yeah. You? Yeah. Back in the day, it's hard to uh, measure, right? Because what question do you ask? Do you ask, you know, what gender do you prefer? I'm sure there are averages that you could find. Do you ask, um, are you satisfied with your decision or... Are the outcomes better? Um, Like one of the things you could do is you could say, what's your preference? And then just randomly assign people and then test to see if their preference, if it was frustrated, led to worse outcomes. Right. Um, But, you know, the outcomes in therapy is such a hard thing. It's a hard thing. To measure anyway. It is. Because by, you know, anyway. So, yeah. So I remember that I remember the research vaguely and it has been researched, but <clears throat> I remember the conclusion was that it's just hard to say and mm-hmm. it's highly personal and it depends. Yeah. Because, you know, to me, it's like the distinction. Uh, there are many things one can say about a particular therapist, male, female or, you know, other genders is just one of the identities. Yeah. You have. Gay, straight, bi, trans, uh, asexual, you know, you have all those identities. You know, people don't usually say, I want a heterosexual therapist. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people say, I want a gay therapist. Yeah. 
but how many people concern themselves with that identity, you know, right. on average, compared to the gender thing? Uh, tall, short, yeah. old, young. Parent, not parent. Atheist, uh, oh, you know, non-atheist. That one comes up not frequently, but I'd say more frequently than some of the others. Yeah. But to me, I don't know about you, uh-huh. knowing all the different therapists that I know yeah. and all the different identities thereof. Yeah. Uh, I almost never use the word thereof verbally, um, but <laughs> you, you're expanding your horizons. <laughs> uh, ergo, um, the 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 details of what will make someone a good you know when someone asks me for a referral like a friend or someone that you know and they're like I'm kind of looking for a therapist like this and I can because I know them I can kind of gauge among the dozen yeah. or so people that I typically refer yeah. who will be a good match gender almost has nothing to do with it yeah it, it's the vibe it's the way this therapist is as a human being their personality mm-hmm. their belief system about what makes people change and how fast they go through there and the, the warmth I, I maybe that's part of it maybe if i put it into words it's when i think about therapists in terms of their most distinctive quality yeah. uh, about how to match them up it's it's the amount of warmth they have mm-hmm. and also just the way they tend to click in terms of their logic um, I, I find that to be so much more um informative in terms of who I think would be a good match. What do you think about that? Yeah. Uh, well, um, I'd say that if gender is going to be a distraction, it probably makes sense to, you know, choose the gender that's the least distracting to you. And at the same time, I don't like it when we make these, you know, rules about such things because we eliminate the possibility of something else. So what? most of them I've been, I've had probably somewhere between 10 and 15 therapists throughout the course of my life. And um, the vast majority of them have been women. But I think that's more like there's just more women therapists. At least there were where, where I was. Um, and right Did now, you ask for a female therapist during those times? I don't recall asking uh, about gender one way or the other. Mm. Yeah. Um, and... I do, So my current therapist right now is a man. And I actually feel like his being a man is really useful for me though i don't know that i would have chosen a man mm, on purpose i wouldn't have chosen a man on purpose so i like that he's a guy and i there's things about talking to him that are different from talking to a woman but i don't think it's better than talking to a woman and i don't think talking to a woman is better than talking to a man it's just different um what how we focus some of the way in which we focus, but in terms of the transference, it's the same. Mm. Meaning? Meaning that the same feelings that come up for me with my female therapists come up for me with my, um, my guy. Yeah. Yeah. The transference of, um, a need for closeness. Yes. A need for, um, a reassurance that, they're not thinking bad thoughts about you, yeah. that they like you yeah. and that they're going to stick around. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, uh, I will say, so basically our thing is gender is a thing. It's not like it's not a thing. Yeah. But it doesn't it, – it, it is it, – it's a bit strange to me, anyway, that people really focus on it as as much as they do. That they overweigh it as a 
Yeah, it's one of the first questions I ask people when I don't really know them very well and they're asking for a therapist because they often do have a preference. Right. Like I'll give them names and they'll be like, oh, actually, I'm looking for a female therapist or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I've learned over time that it's good to know. Just ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think part of it is that uh, there are, uh, I I think, misconceptions about gender that I think will mislead people. Like, for example... Uh, this this letter this, this anonymous patron said <laughs> that men have a minimal capacity for strong dis- displays of emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, socialization is a thing, but among therapists, it's not anecdotally true in my experience yeah. at all. Uh, most of my trainees are female, identify as cisgender female, and they all have problems with expressing emotions. Oh, sure. They all have problems with even knowing their emotions. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, this, there's this misconception of just like, if you don't really have the experience delving into various, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people on this topic of emotional awareness right. and uh, non-shame and freedom of expression, right. um, everyone is you know, massively stunted, particularly in Western society. <laughs> and uh, to some extent, men, I've found if there is a generalization, they have an easier time opening up through the discovery process of graduate school and therapy because they are, one, I think, so bottled up mm-hmm. comparatively. And two, because there's this kind of reverse sexism that happens where when men will express themselves, there's a lot of appreciation about it because it it goes against the grain. Right. And so I think a lot of men get a fair amount of reinforcement on that level, whereas women might not get that as much reinforcement because there's still, Still. particularly I think in, and actually I've never really thought about this, but uh, I think it stands to reason if it's just, uh, uh, anyway, the, for women, they are, you know, because of sexism, treated like they are automatically not competent. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so they have to act twice as competent right. to be treated as, you know, with the same respect as, as a man does. And so in the therapy world, which is a highly professionalized, um, you know, profession these days. Yeah, right. Women will put a lot of effort into trying to come across like professionals, uh-huh. uh, whereas men are just kind of assumed like, oh, yeah, you're you know, right. uh, there'll be a, a group of psychology trainees and, you know, typically it's like uh, one male for every 10 females. Mm-hmm. The one male, when he talks, even though he's just as ignorant as everyone else, it just seems to hold more weight given oh. given sexism. That's you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And when a woman talks, it's it's just not taken as seriously. Yeah. And so the uh, so I and because we mistake professionalism with stoicism and non emotionality, right. um, I think that um, is a is another barrier that women have to overcome in this weird kind of backward way. It's, you know, it is a weird right. Yeah, and so I. And since most of my students are women, I have a, and most of my trainees, most of my supervisees, yeah. I, I have a lot of experience with this, with breaking my uh, stereotype that women are 
better with emotions because I have not experienced that at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, everyone sucks with emotions, <laughs> women included. Um, now, might women be more socialized to uh, just like the average woman on the street mm-hmm. be more likely to uh, accept emotions in themselves and other people? Maybe, you know, again, because of socialization. Yeah. But the level of emotionality that you need to exhibit and be aware of to become like a really competent therapist is so, so way beyond even like an above average female in our yeah. society. It's so way beyond that, you know? And so, so, you know, anonymous patron, one of the things that kind of irks me a little bit when people even have a preference for gender when it comes to a therapist is because I think it's often based on these misconceptions. Yes. You, anonymous patron, have this idea that men have a minimal, just all men have a minimal capacity for strong displays of emotions. Um, that is, that's just not my experience of, you know, it's not your experience of a, men, ther- a therapist. A therapist. Well, but even of, you know, maybe it's just the men I hang around with or something, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I just, I, I find that in a cultural pocket where the men have problems with emotions, I'm guessing the women do too, you yeah. know? So again, on average, for sure, men are socialized to deny emotions more for yeah. sure. So yeah. that we've, we can, we can measure that empirically, right. but, um, but anyway, so, you know, if you were to get a referral for a male therapist, my guess is, is that on average, they're, they're going to be pretty good because they've yeah. been trained. Yeah. Um, or at least not any more likely right. to be bad than a woman would be. Right. Um, Worth kicking the tires on. You know, like if you do get a male therapist referral, why not check it out just yeah. to see? Yeah. Um, having said all that, I will say it's perfectly fine to have a preference. Yeah, there's, sure. there's nothing wrong with yeah. being like, I want this, I want that, I want that. I tell you, the preference that bugs the crap out of me the most is the geographic preference. Mm. Like people's like, well, I don't want to travel that far, you know, and I get it on the one hand, it's Seattle and traffic sucks here and it's far and people have lots of obligations on the one hand. I get that. But um, sometimes the best person isn't geographically, geographically convenient and ruling out because they're not, I think is a, I always, I say to people, look, minimize the importance of geography when you're looking for a counselor because a good one's harder to find than a local one. Yeah, that's true. A, uh, once you find a good therapist, yeah, um, it's such a, it's such a find, right? Yeah. Once you connect with someone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that it, to deny that possibility because of, a. Uh, 30 minute commute as opposed to a 15 minute commute. Yeah. Right. You know, it just yeah. seems like not, um, the right priorities. Yeah. Um, the, the assumption I'm guessing that you're, that you're hearing and they're, when they're saying that is like, Oh, you're assuming that you're going to find a good match within a short distance of your home right. or your work. Yeah. Uh, I, I would think again on that, yeah. you know what I mean? Because, yeah. It's hard to find yeah. the right therapist. <laughs> um, it's sort of be like if someone's going on Tinder and they're like, okay, I'm looking for, uh, you know, a six foot three, you know, blonde into Gilmore Girls, you know, like the, <laughs> someone's just rattling off all uh-huh. these things. and You're just like, oh, honey, mm-hmm. like just wait until you yeah. actually even find someone like that and right. find out that you hate that person. <laughs> like you should probably loosen up the, yeah. the the checking of the boxes a little bit and actually just try to find someone that you can tolerate. You know what I mean? Uh, 
I think uh, it's happened to me recently. Somebody said, you know, they were looking for a couple counselor and I was great because I was nearby and I'm just like, oh man. Oh, I mean, I'm glad I'm nearby and that's convenient for you, but oh, wow. That's not a criteria I would ever use. Yeah. So anonymous patient goes on to say, what do you say to your male supervisees in this female dominated field? Um, About what? uh, Well, I think in relation to how they can, um, I don't know, be good for female clients or something. I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, it's a relevant question for sure. Uh, With everyone, uh, you know, we discuss gender socialization and and trauma, really. We've all been traumatized uh, by gender bias and socialization, uh, oppression, this kind of thing. It's probably worth paying attention to privilege. Yeah. I, I, actually, I don't like what I just said. Can I say it again? Yeah. It is absolutely worthwhile paying attention to privilege. That <laughs> is a serious blind spot, especially if you're a person of privilege. Yeah. You can't smell your own bad breath, so you've got to pay attention. <laughs> I like that. Because um, you're used to it, I guess. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And no one's ever pointed it out. That's exactly. Bad. Yeah. Uh, men in my circle have one been uh self-selected for their wokeness shall we say yeah and also in terms of the people who go to antioch like you don't go to antioch antioch in seattle is known as the most socially progressive yeah even though the other institutions would like to think that they um also have that reputation and they do yeah but Antioch has a long history. I mean, we had right. Coretta Scott King as an alumni for crying out loud. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, was at our graduation at one of our campuses giving a speech, you know. Wow. Um, talking about the, the long history of how socially progressive Antioch has been since the mid-1800s. Wow. We had like some of the very first female paid professors, maybe the first in the United States. No kidding. Some of the first people of color as professors. Yeah, Antioch has this long history of of this sort of thing. Um, A lot of the other institutions have, uh, I think, wisely, and and I celebrate that they've woken up to that idea. You know, pretty much every college campus is on the social progressive side of things, you know. Um, But, that wasn't always the case. Right. And anyway, so, uh, so yeah, I uh, will have a lot of the men that I teach and supervise. I don't have to teach them about privilege because they've they've already either been woken up to that or they've taken a number of classes and experienced enough. And so, it's something that um, that they definitely look at, and I will point out. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it, gender socialization is a thing for, for everyone. Yeah. Um, and also how it affects their countertransference and their bias is right. something always something to think about. Um, you go on to say here, what are your thoughts on therapists diagnosing their clients with borderline personality disorder as a way to discredit them? Oh, well, before going on to another topic, oh. um, I just want to say that to you, anonymous patron, it, you say that, you know, due to your experiences with men and women growing up, you have a preference for female therapists, and you can't really imagine yourself being with a male therapist. But I don't feel safe. Yeah, that's totally fine. You you should not, just because Bob and I are saying it probably isn't a problem if you did have a male therapist, yeah. 
that doesn't mean that you should force yourself to no. have a male therapist. No. Um, you're, there's a lot more female therapists out there. Sure. <laughs> so you're, you're, you're in the majority in that one. Um, and, you know, if, if that identity helps in any way, by all means, you should yeah. advocate for that. I will, I'll also say that in the beginning of my career when I was in an agency, uh, uh, people would come to the agency, right? They wouldn't come to me. Yeah, right. And they'd do an intake and they'd say, okay, well, what kind of therapist do you want? And sometimes people would say, oh, I want a male or I want a female. Right. And I will say in the beginning of, my, beginning of my career, it was kind of a pain in the ass when people would say they wanted a female, but then they're like, well, we don't have any females, females with openings. Right. You're going to get Kirk. And so I would get the intake and I'd see that as, yeah, well, they prefer a female, but they're getting you. Right. And, and it, was, it, was, it was hard in that yeah. respect because it's like I'm already walking into the room at a, at a deficit. Yeah. I will say that universally, I always won them over. You sure. know what I mean? Because, again, it has more to do with your vibe than it has to do with gender. Yeah. What's the experience of Kirk in the room right. is really what it's going to boil down to. Yeah. And it, you know, uh, socially, I, I, it makes sense because, you know, there would be like a, a pretty 16-year-old girl who suffers from something and yeah. the parents are coming in and they're just like, well, they're not used to leaving their 16-year-old girl in a room alone with a man. Yeah. So I get the, the impulse. Yeah. But we're different. Do you know what I mean? Well, we're supposed to be we're anyway. Supposed to be. <laughs> I'm different. I, yeah. I, 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 I can be trusted. Now, they don't know that because they don't sure. know me or and that right. kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there were lots of situations where in the beginning of my career, especially, you know, I talk about this sometimes where, and I'm, I'm sort of like a little weirded out by it, but definitely was not at the time, was I used to do in-home therapy uh, for years. Yeah. And half of my team, and it was a lot of teenagers, teenagers and parents that I was working with, and half the teenagers were female. And so, um, and I'm the sort of family therapist that likes to meet alone with everyone in the family mm -hmm. at some point, you know, parents alone, kids sure. alone. Right. And it was in home, it was sort of inconvenient if I was to monopolize the living room for right. two hours. And so I would just, you know, I would ask and they, well, just go meet with her in the bedroom. And so I would, I would go into the teenage girl's bedroom and, right. and there's, there often wasn't a seat. And so I'd sit on the bed or I'd yeah. sit on the floor or something right. and do therapy there. Yeah. Um, and so uh, if you took a snapshot of it, it probably would have looked odd to society. But to me, it felt totally natural. Oh, yeah. There was, there was, there was nothing odd about it. And there wasn't a single creeper thought in my brain. Yeah. Cause I'm a professional and I have, my needs are met, uh, you know, satisfactorily in the, in the normal ways. So let's just put it that way. You don't have a problem with aggression. Yeah. Yeah. And for whatever reason, I just, I just don't have a lot of creep genes in my DNA or something. I don't know. But, yeah. um, so, uh, the, but I would benefit though, because uh, some people would have boys and they, you know, boys who, miss their fathers, for example. And when given a choice, the parents would be like, well, it'd kind of be nice if he had a father figure. Uh, do you have a male therapist? So, so overall, sure. I mostly benefited because of the preferences 
the way it would, did in the wash, since there were so few male therapists, right? I got all the male preferenced intakes. Do right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and there were plenty of female therapists for the female preference intakes. Right. Um, in fact, I would say the beginning of my career was probably twice as lucrative because I was one of the very few male therapists. Really? Yeah. Oh, because you get paid per case. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, in private practice, you know, you yeah, know like yeah. with the state stuff. And so right. um, anyway. You know, I think uh, if we're seeking a therapist, we get to pick our level of challenge. So if gender is going to be something that distracts me and that's not relevant to or germane to my reason for coming to counseling, then, yeah, right. You know, choose the one that makes me feel better. It's a dialectic, really, because you think about it on the one hand. Yeah, it actually makes sense. Choose the level of challenge. Choose the gender that makes you feel better, you know. And on the other hand, um, there is the elimination of the possibility of an experience that one can't anticipate because one hasn't actually swam in the pool yet. So I'm thinking about a sweetie I had 100 years ago back in college who um, uh, had been abused by a man in her church when she was uh, young uh, before, during high school years. And, um, when she was in graduate training, she wanted to go to therapy and she was assigned a male therapist. And that experience ended up turning out to be really invaluable to her because she was treated well by a man and had this kind of, it had a corrective, um, it had a corrective, uh, impact on her. So, and, uh, she told me about that guy. He seemed like just really decent, warm, gentle, loving man. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm yeah. glad you brought that up because yeah. I, I would have forgot to bring that up. Yeah, that's a, a big point to bring up for people. And I know a lot of you listeners have thought about that because you, you you'll email me about it. For you, Anonymous Patron, of course, you are free to make your own choices yeah. and should. and But at the same time, Contemplate that your uh, discomfort with males could be um, corrected for emotionally. Um, that's a weird word, but could be healed if you had, if you chose a warm, empathic male therapist. Um, some of the wounds that you've experienced from men in your past uh, could be healed in that way. Whether or not that's a thing you care about or not is totally up to you. Yeah. Um, so you go on to say here, what are your thoughts on therapists diagnosing their clients with borderline personality disorder as a way to discredit them, especially when they make claims against the therapist, when the client makes claims against the therapist? Oh. And um, In other words, you yeah. know, a client sues a therapist. The therapist says, well, that's just a symptom of borderline. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, it's gross. It shouldn't be done. Diagnoses are for assessment purpose alone. They're not to um, whack somebody on the head. And there is an unfortunate, I hope it's shifting. I I don't know if it's shifting because I live in a sort of a bubble where um, the prejudice against that particular disorder is um, not such a big deal. But I do know that the world at large has a certain amount of ignorance and that the mental health community can treat folks with BPD or folks that they label with BPD with disdain. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like treating the person who's coming to you for a pen for, for surgery because you're a surgeon. You say, "Well, I don't like treating people with that kind of problem." You know, it's like, "Well, you're a surgeon. 
right? You treat what comes in the door, right? So I don't really love my metaphor, but nonetheless. Well, it'd be as though, like, if this, if, um, there were certain kinds of cancers that they were like, well, pe- those those kinds of cancers are self inflicted, right? Um, that that's just because they had a they had a weak they have lung cancer because they probably smoke cigarettes or right. you know it's this discounting of the human being yeah. that is um, based on you know clinical labels or something. Yeah, using the labels though for unintended purposes. Oh, shit, when I was in uh, when I was when I first moved here, um, I was working at this mental health clinic down Renton and. I got referred a client who had borderline personality disorder, and unfortunately, I was swimming in a pool of um, prejudice against that particular disorder, like all around me. And the way people talked about this client, it actually scared me. And so when I started knowing her, um, I was afraid of her. And two things happened. One is I discovered nobody got that one right. She didn't have borderline personality disorder. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know for what that's worth. People, people mis, misuse and misdiagnose. And the other was she was lovely, really lovely, lovely person. I liked her quite a bit. What behavior were they looking at that cued them to think it was borderline? She was in crisis and she was angry and she was scared. And so she would be demanding. And quite frankly, she had a psychotic illness. And I think that when she was having psychotic symptoms, part of the way it came out is in this sort of brittle, angry, demanding behavior. Yeah. But by and large with me, she was just sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, too, if it is the circle that we're in, the bubble that we're in, Mm -hmm. uh, because I will occasionally bump up against other circles and realize, oh, maybe... (sighs) Maybe this hasn't changed at all. It's discouraging, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just a <clears throat> another example of just how, I don't know how to put this, <laughs> how bad our training is, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, the fact that people will not have been told other things. You know, like one of the things that I'm frequently ranting about is the frequent misconception of psychodynamic theory right and that you know i i gave a lecture on psychodynamic therapy uh recently in in class and and as a way of saying to everyone look um okay you don't have to you don't have to believe in psychodynamic therapy you don't have to follow it but you do have to respect what it gave us my cat suddenly has a Chiming in. Tremendous respect from the yeah. cat. Um, <laughs> Sorry, cat. <laughs> well, you, when you scare her, uh, which she's easily scared, uh, she... Okay. Want to say hi? It's <laughs> <laughs> not a happy-looking cat right now. No, she's happy. She she's just she's she's just, she's just talking. You know, she's the smallest creature in our house makes the most noise. Um the dog barely barks, the rest of us are fairly quiet. But uh what was I oh, saying? Oh, you're giving a lecture about psychedelic oh. theory and what it's given us. Yeah, thank you. For, <laughs> um and long story short, I laid out a number of different things and a lot of the students were like, "Wait, so the other theories don't hold, though, you know, the idea of personality 
is actually totally a psychodynamic idea. And the other fields generally don't have the idea of personality and they reject it. Cognitive theory, behavioral theory, humanistic therapy in general, especially at its roots, completely rejected the notion of personality and embraced the notions that you can uh, you are who you say you are and you can change that at any time, essentially. Yeah. Um, and so the idea of the unconscious, the idea of attachment, yeah. it basically came out of psychodynamic theory. And so anyway, um, so I wonder sometimes about how weirdly bad our training is. Um, it's one thing to uh, be taught that psychodynamic theory, although should be respected or has these has this history, maybe not be maybe in that professor's opinion isn't the best idea. It's another thing to graduate from graduate school with complete just misconceptions about theory and about borderline, yeah. which many people do. Oh, yeah. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, I would bump up against this sometimes where um, people will talk that way that this was, what, 30 years ago that you were at, in Renton yeah. at that agency? I, those mm. conversations are still happening today. Mm. I, about five years ago, I was at an agency in a staff meeting, and I wasn't in power, and so I couldn't – I didn't feel like I could really do much about it, but the same sentiment was going on. Um, and in other professions as well, like I had, I worked with a client – once uh, in collaboration with a physician. So we were both trying to help this client and the physician was getting kind of scared of the situation oh. and said, um, you know, I think, I think she has borderline personality disorder. Oh, and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> um, where does that come from? One, two, uh, you clearly don't understand what borderline personality is. Yeah. It's just that it's a, it's a tag word, yeah. I think, for a lot of people of yeah. like, this person's difficult. Right. They're giving me shit uh-huh. or they're resistant to therapy uh-huh. or just something, just some kind of frustration. Right. And thus they have borderline and thus I don't have to do anything. Oh, yeah. Right. That second part uh, is really important. Right. I don't have to do anything is I wash my hands of it, you know. Right. It's it's a lost cause or it's, something. And it's like, what? You know, yeah. uh, one, okay, fine. If you think the person is borderline, okay, well, it, if that's what you think, let's talk about that. Sure. But, okay, now what? Yeah. Treat it. Yeah, treat if, it. If there, you think that's a, what's wrong. Yeah. There's a way to treat all the things in the DSM, yeah. you know. There's an approach that works that is empirically sound. Um, and so, yeah, it makes me sick. And, and the, the, part of, the part that really just kind of gets me is... Um, why in the fuck did you become a counselor if this is how you want to think about people? Yeah. Like, why did you even enter the field? Yeah. I get if some Joe Schmo on the corner wants to write people off because of they're mentally ill or they're borderline or something. You know, that's fine. You're you're a lay person. You're not. A, you didn't. You didn't invite that sort of concept into your life. Right. By entering this field, you are inviting yeah. this into your life right. and to conclude that there's a there's a section of humans that are like lost causes and should be rejected and should be terminated early right. and should be discounted is is like uh get out of the field like you're not in the right field yeah. like there are plenty of other jobs on the planet for you to, 
you know, you could have been. Uh, feel free to quit being a counselor and do those other things. There are, uh, you know, a You'll lot. be happier. Yeah. Uh, the world will be better with you doing that. Become a car salesman. You know what I mean? Do something else. Uh, stay out of this field, you know? It'd be like me entering, like you said, uh, the field of surgery or something and just being like, oh, yeah, people with cancer are gross. I yeah. don't want to work with them. It's yeah. just like, well, no one forced you into this field. Yeah, right. <laughs> Guess what? Guess what came in the door? That's what you work with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, yeah, it just we have strong feelings about the anonymous patrons question here. What do we think about that? We think it's a bad idea. It shouldn't be done, right? So I'm guessing anonymous patron, you've experienced that either firsthand or secondhand or something. I'm sorry. Where um, therapists diagnosing their clients with borderline as a way to to discredit them, and and especially when they make claims against the therapist. Um, let's address that more specifically. Thoughts about that. Well, it's like not, if there's a complaint or a lawsuit or something. Well, it's not relevant in any any mm, administrative body that deals with those kind of complaints. Uh, if they're not outraged, they should be because it's not useful. It's not descriptive. It has no information in it, and it's um, purely to undermine somebody else, and it's playing on the potential for prejudice against. Right. So. You know, like maybe if you really want to talk about how you think the person's personality is a factor in their complaint, you should just describe it in just plain language. You don't need a diagnosis to say something about that if that's what you believe is the case. Yeah, it's a, it'd be similar to if a African-American was to uh, say that... Um, they didn't do it or something, yeah. the, the crime, right. if they were you know, uh, accused of a crime, and be like, well, you know, they're African-American. So, Like, uh, most of us would understand that's ridiculous. Yeah. That, that doesn't say anything. No. And it speaks more to the person saying it than it then, does. To, right. <laughs> it's informational, but not about the person yeah. being talked about. <laughs> now, I will say that these, uh, you know, licensing boards and judges are not necessarily uh, different than no. than uh, therapists and will uh, often, this will be a valid defense. Man. Or you mean a, a recognized one? Or yeah, or a sorry, one a, a recognized as valid defense. A, an, a yeah. Erroneously yeah. recognized as valid defense, right. right. They'll see it as valid. And so, you know... Uh, it might work at the same time as it's gross. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's... It's awful. Now, what I also will say is that considering a person's state of mind and their issues is relevant. I'm not going to say that it's not. No. But being borderline, simply the label, yeah, it's not doesn't empirically say anything. Nothing. Uh, one can uh, perhaps be a slightly more likely to be triggered into uh, being upset if you have the traumas that have led to what we label as borderline. Yeah. But one can have traumas that lead to lots of labels in the DSM that mm. um, can be triggered by a therapist and create, shall we say, distortions of evaluation of the service that's provided. If that's even the case. Right. Imagine you're being accused of something and you did it. You're, you know... 
you're going to throw, you, I guess you could, you could throw that term borderline at the client saying, oh, we'll see because they're borderline, right. you know, we, we don't have to validate their, in fact, I think that happened to somebody that I was, uh, that was in my, one of my DBT students. I think that actually happened to her when she was abused by one of her treaters and, um, I'm pretty sure that the whatever the system was that she was in that was adjudicating, um, they took the doc's side, and um, uh, as a result, she lost her case. And I think that part of the defense was her mental health troubles. Like they actually used her symptoms and her difficulties as evidence that she was not credible. Yeah, and so on one level, that's prejudicial and awful yeah. and oppressive. On another hand, it if and I could see in some cases where it would be relevant. You know, someone is let's take a non-borderline example. Someone has a history of psychosis. All right, and their psychosis has to do with paranoia and um, believing that they, uh, you know people are out to get them yeah. and they um the client might have thought at some point that a previous physician had broken into his house right um when in fact that wasn't likely yeah even though you couldn't prove it. it's like well he covered his tracks right. you know but everyone's like well you were in a psychotic episode right. for those two months the likelihood right that your doctor actually broke into your house yeah. is has to be you know it, and it's because it's a he said, he said situation. Sure, the right. doctor said, no, I never broke into his house. Right. The, the patient's like, yes, he did. Yeah, right. Well, it is relevant to bring up the psychotic Absolutely. symptoms. Yeah. So so in borderline or any other personality disorder, for that matter, any any disorder, um, you know, is is relevant when you're trying to figure out the um, the veracity or the intensity, shall we yeah. say, of, of, of the claim. Um, but to simply... Uh, just say that someone's borderline and, and that somehow is yeah. open and open and shut case. Um, in the case of this client, if you're going to stick with the psychotic thing, the doctor actually broke into their house. What? No, no, I'm, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm using this as a metaphor. <laughs> it's like, right. wow, I just the, took a swing. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. So, so my, my client, she actually was abused. Yeah. Right. She actually was abused. Um, so I think the court, or whoever it was, I, I don't know if it was a court, they sided with the doc because of her history of mental health troubles, even though she actually was abused by this provider. Even though the fact of the uh, sexual contact between the two people was not in dispute. Yeah, I didn't say it was sexual contact, but... Well, um, whatever sort yeah, of whatever abuse was, yeah. that happened, yeah. that the contact or the abuse mm -hmm. was not de debated. No. The the clinician admitted, yes, those things did happen. This happened because my client, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 So that's. Uh, Greasy. Yeah. And, and not surprising. Uh, one of the surprises that I have discovered uh, in my, you know, being uh, uh contracted as an expert in some of these situations really yeah and, and also oh, and also um uh reading a lot of ethical yeah. cases where right. true cases where right. it actually goes to the state or right. to court or something the thing that i have walked away with is that 
in general, the system supports the clinicians. Like when in doubt, mm-hmm. which a lot of them are like that. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them are sort of like, well, you know, it's yeah. kind of in a gray area. They tend to support the clinician. Right. Which it has has good news and bad news. On good news, we I can tell my trainees, look, all your paranoia about ethics and, and the law and everything is overblown. You, you need to do what's right. If mm-hmm. I mean, if, of anyone, you know, who will keep supervisees, you know, um, ethical and will sort of rail about that, it's me. But at the same time, the amount of fear that therapists have is just way yeah. overblown, particularly yeah. in the beginning. Right. And so uh, be, not only because there's a lot more flexibility than I think they realize, but also because the chance of you actually, even when you do make a mistake, the chance of you actually being complained about is really, really low. Mm, yeah. And then even if it goes to the top of the chain, the chance of you being found, quote unquote, guilty or whatever the you know yeah. sort of uh, situation at hand is, um, is actually pretty low as well. And even if you are found, quote unquote, guilty, the consequences are often pretty low. Yeah. I mean, just as an example... Um, we had a, uh, you know, a listener to the podcast, Mayate, she um, wants her name out there as someone who went through this. And we did a couple, few podcasts about her situation years ago. But she had a therapist who, the uh, long and short of it was that he um, used a lot of touch in therapy, starting mm-hmm. with touching the hand, then leading to um, eventually where they're basically on the couch cuddling for the whole hour and he's caressing her. Um, they're in a full embrace body to body. And he's saying how much he wants to have sex with her and, and, and how beautiful she is. Uh. And, and um, you know, basically like Maite was like, well, the next time we get together, we're probably going to have sex. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and, this therapist had, you know, it's pretty obvious. It's it's a problem, right? Yeah. Well, the th- well, she complained and uh, bravely stood up and said, "This is not okay," and this therapist needs to be looked at. And because I was a part of the of the case, um, I learned the the consequence, which with the, to the licensing board was a. Uh, I think he went on probation for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And he needed to get a certain amount of supervision and education, and then he could get his license back. And then he could, which, or maybe he need, never even lost his license, but he had to do supervision, take some classes, um, you know, never do that again, that kind of thing. And he was practicing again. Yeah. And, and, and so I figured the sort, I can't remember, but I think he had to pay a fine too or something. But I think the, the, the time and money penalty was pretty low. Yeah. Um, and so all the other things that my supervisees worry about are like far below that kind of egregious behavior. You know, I accepted a gift. Am I going to go to jail for the rest of my life? You know, that kind of thought. (laughs) And so, um, so anyway, uh, but yeah, so you ask Adamus patron, um, you know, is, is it a way to discredit them? Uh, Yeah. Unfortunately, it does get used that way Yuck. and it does work that way. Yeah. And it's because our field doesn't understand borderline 
And our society sure as shit doesn't understand mental illness in general. Mm -hmm. And so uh, an oppressed class continues to get oppressed. Um, And I will also say that the oppressed class is everyone. Everyone's on a personality disorder spectrum of some sort, if not several. So uh, we're talking about everyone here. (laughs) This is there's not like, oh, the mentally ill and, you know, people who qualify for a DSM diagnosis and those who don't. I mean, if you don't qualify for one, you're a hair away from one. Uh, so, so uh, you know, it's, we just need to recognize we're really just talking about humans and their defenses against difficulty. Yeah. It's, it's, that's that's all. That's a lot of these things in DSMR. And so, uh, anyway, so let's take a break. But when we get back, it's going to be for patrons only. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. So become a patron of the podcast. You can listen to the rest of this meandering episode in which we respond to patron emails. All right. We're back from the break. Thanks for becoming a patron, all you out there. Super Bowl, Bob. Uh, this is going to come out. This episode is going to come out after the Super Bowl. Oh, okay. But what do you think? 49ers. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? No. Oh. I'm just rooting for Richard Sermon, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I cannot figure... I, I've never had a season where I've had the time and the space to really follow the NFL as much as I have this year. Yeah. Um, partially because of YouTube, because there's a lot of YouTube channels that will like break down... Uh, passing routes and and blocking schemes, and they'll, they'll they'll spend like ten minutes on one play, and you'll you'll really get to know. Wow, like, yeah, because I played football, but our schemes were so simple. Yeah, you know, run that way and catch the ball. Like in the NFL, they have just so many different. It's like an arms race between these defenses <laughs> and, and offenses. Like they're so complicated, uh. and I cannot figure out who which one's going to win. And I could see it being a blowout either way. Mm. You know, it's it's weird, yeah. uh, which is exciting. You know, and I hope it is. I hope it is. You know, a pretty good game. But you, if you I was to it. edge out, I would say KC. No kidding. Yeah, I just think that uh, their offense is just unstoppable. Yeah. And although the 49ers defense is is great, and their offense is potent yeah i just don't think they're going to be able to keep up no kidding yeah wow well i don't find out like i i think that the 49ers defense is going to stop them more than average Uh but their casey's offense they just have too many weapons and patrick mahomes is just too electric he's amazing yeah and and the the but the thing is is both coaches are amazing too Mm -hmm. and so you just don't you know and and the 49ers coach is so smart. It's like maybe he would be able to figure out a way. Um, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I, but I could absolutely see 49ers dominating. Anyway, you going to watch the game? Yeah, you. Yeah. I don't think I am actually oh. this year. How We're come? not doing our usual thing. We usually have folks over and have some chili and cornbread and yeah, you know stuff. Um, but you're not going to watch it at all. No, I think I'm probably going to be on the road. Oh, yeah, coming back from the weekend. In your summer the home. thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so next email here. Uh, let's see. From Sterling. He writes, I'll occasionally listen to this other episode 
this other podcast. I'll occasionally listen to this other podcast on psychology because I'm interested in the topic of personality disorders, and I found that the amount of available content on the subject is pretty limited. Uh, this other podcast, this guy, he claims to help people cure their borderline personality disorder. Usually, I just listen to pass the time, but this episode was different. Oh, my gosh. This guy claims it's a bullshit idea, quote unquote, that borderline personality disorder could be in any way related to trauma. Really? And he says mental health professionals who claim there's a link shouldn't be practicing. I'm worried he may be de- – I, I worried he may have devoted followers trying to get their borderline personality disorder cured by his podcast. I mean, yikes. Anyway, I thought of you when I listened to this, and I thought I'd send it your way. Only listen if you're in the mood to be triggered and roll your eyes at yet another internet commentator who misunderstands personality disorders. Oh, did you listen? So I did. Um, And I also read his articles related to this. So he – I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to give him a plug. (laughs) But he sells sells classes – on he's not a clinician yeah. he, he actually he says that he he has recovered from his own borderline uh, uh-huh. and that he sells classes and also phone consultations and this kind of thing huh. and on his website he says i lived with borderline personality disorder unknowingly for the first 35 years of my life over the course of roughly seven years i managed to authentically rid myself of the disorder once and for all I now speak openly about the experience so that you might accomplish authentic recovery for yourself, even in less time than I did. Okay, so nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, there's nothing inherently awful. We can't verify that it's true. Right. Uh, His article, uh, quote, Trauma did not cause you to adopt these erroneous... So this is in the middle of an article. Yeah. Um, And he he basically says that uh, borderline is a set of er- erroneous perceptions, which which is fine. It's not a terrible way of looking at it. But anyway, um, trauma did not cause you to adopt these erroneous perceptions. It was the environment you grew up in where you received regular, ongoing, subtle, false messages. And how were these messages communicated? Through trauma? No. Remember, borderline personality disorder is not shell shock or PTSD. Borderline personality disorder is not a reflex, like jumping when a loud noise occurs. Borderline personality disorder comes from the poor emotional education we received when we were children. This is what causes us to adopt the two erroneous concepts about the nature of our feelings of self and life. Who were our emotional teachers? Who are, who are every child's emotional teachers? That's right. It's our parents our, or our immediate caregivers. And the way they educated us incorrectly about the nature of feeling, sex, and life had nothing to do with trauma, even in the cases of those who experience physical abuse. Rather, we received this poor emotional education by means of our emotional teacher's attitudes. Bob, what do you think? I think it's just, um, it depends on how you want to define the word trauma. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, this this guy, this is why you need to be an expert, not only to treat borderline, and this guy might actually effectively treat borderline. I don't know. I yeah. can't speak to that. And maybe he is an expert given his, his experience. But you definitely need to be an expert to understand the literature uh, mm-hmm. uh, of, in our field. Uh, he, he's, as you, you know, he just, I mean, you're saying it depends on your definition of, of trauma. Yeah. I would say he doesn't understand the meaning of the word trauma. <laughs> nor, does he really, nor does he really understand PTSD or a general 
trauma reaction. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. Huh? Yeah, I mean, he just doesn't understand, which is fine because you're a layperson. Why yeah. would you understand? Now, the word trauma, it's not like a word, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's a word that people understand and are, you know, reg- it's a regular word that it's people get. It's a regular word and people have a view of or a sense of what that means. Right. But in the clinical literature, it means something different sometimes. Yeah. And so uh, if you operate from a very narrow definition of trauma, meaning trauma that results in PTSD, which is an extremely narrow, but not in, not, I, I wouldn't fault him for having that misunderstanding. I mean, clinicians sometimes misunderstand that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we use the word trauma related to borderline, we're using a much broader term, right? Yes. How would you define that broader term? Oh, uh, let's see. Um, As a relationship borderline. Um, well, maybe if I ask a different question, when you are talking to your clients who have borderline and you say, well, you know, you've been traumatized, what does that usually refer to? Oh, um, a sense of not feeling safe and um, not feeling as though they're lovable. Right. That's just, yeah. Right. Uh, not safe, not lovable. And from an early age... You need a way of coping with that. <laughs> and my cat is still um, making noises. Um, in a way of coping with that, there's a number of different things you have available to you, one of which is the what we call borderline personality, which is a, um, a ramping up of your attachment signals um, and language and you know signals that you're like my cat right now as she is you know purring and going against my leg and and meowing, she's saying, I want love. And if I give her love, then she's like, okay, you know, you heard my signal Mm -hmm. and I got the love. When you're a child and you're giving those signals and you're not getting, very occasionally you get like a little morsel of love. One of the ways of coping with that is to be extremely loud with your meowing (laughs) and to rub up against people's legs a lot, you know. Because it's like, well, this is the only way I'm going to get anything, and I get twice as much morsels, which isn't enough to begin with. Um, also, um, I'm incredibly unsafe in relationships. Like, I, like people are – it's hard to trust people. Yeah. Um, through experience, I've learned. Now, uh, so we – so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about trauma. Now, that can play out in traumatic, quote-unquote, PTSD-like trauma experiences, like being sexually abused. Yeah physically abused Mm -hmm. because these are horrible uh, experiences but they carry with it a message uh, particularly if it's by a family member that you're not safe with me and that uh, in order for me to give you some morsels of love you have to endure very horrible things or something yeah and so uh so what this guy is talking about he's essentially just wording it in a way a slightly different than the way we're wording it. I, the message behind what he is saying is actually, I think, uh, uh, a good one. Yeah. But he he has a bone to pick with all mental, and his whole website is basically about all therapists are terrible. Oh. And which you know we've been talking about some many therapists are terrible when it comes mm-hmm. to borderline. Yeah. So it's not unjustified, and maybe the few that he's encountered, yeah, it could be, were some of those terrible ones. Right. Uh, but to indict the entire industry and also to misunderstand trauma, um, I think is misguided. You know, well, I, he's also selling a product, right? So that's the thing. Yeah, he's selling a product, and he's making money. So not only in his podcast, but his his 
I don't know what you even call it, this consultation or something. I don't like that. I don't like the idea that I make some, I smear something so that I can feel or look better. Yeah. I really don't like that. Yeah. I mean, if you have something good to offer, fine. You have something good to offer, offer it. Yeah. But the idea that you have to make the other thing bad so that you can stand out as good just grosses me out. Yeah. But you could see the uh, reinforcement loop in this, you know, situation that there's a there's a section of people who suffer from borderline or related kinds of personality issues who interface with the mental health field. Yeah. And either are matched up with a terrible clinician or they're matched up with an okay clinician and the the, the intensity of the therapeutic relationship is such that even when therapists are trained because you know for me I'm an expert in, in borderline I've blown out with some borderline clients before because I'm not always uh, at the top of my game <laughs> and I sometimes make mistakes yeah and some of those mistakes not egregious mistakes but like you know like a mistake like uh, confronting mildly confronting a client too soon Mm -hmm. Um, Like I have a thought of just like, well, you know, maybe your problems have at least something to do with the way that you think about that. You know, maybe thinking about it differently might help. You're not an ally yet. So saying such a thing can be experienced as I'm being blamed for my troubles. Right. Which I get and I fully understand. Sure. Uh, And sometimes I make the mistake of jumping on that too early before I'm, as you say, an ally. And so... Um, and I've had borderline clients uh, terminate with me and, and never come back yeah. uh, because I made that mistake. So so even therapists that are experts that know the deal will still uh, sometimes be, because of that, you know, not a lot of disorders that we tend to treat or presenting problems we treat um, are, uh, you know, the, the, the thing at hand. It, how do I put this into words? Um the therapeutic relationship is both the cure and the trauma yeah. to the client. Yeah. Uh, it, it, you know, if I, if I go to a, a therapist for my panic, for example, my relationship with the therapist isn't going to trigger me. What's going to trigger me is my own panic and, or things that trigger my panic, right. like, you know, the things that would trigger my panic, right. claustrophobia, this kind of thing. Right. Um, I'm not going to be triggered by my therapist. My, th- my therapist, it, it'd be like to treat panic um, all therapists had extremely small rooms and uh, they were locked and I had to wear a straight jacket or something <laughs> like that's what being that's what having a borderline personality is like in order to be cured you have to go to the source of all of your terror mm-hmm. which is am I lovable mm-hmm. does this person actually care about me you know or is it or are they just acting like they care about me and do they secretly hate me? And I might not know that if I'm if I'm coming into therapy because I have this set of troubles. I might not know that the the relationship is supposed to be the cure, and that rupture in the relationship, first off, is just natural. People's relationships rupture, and re- relationships are not characterized by not rupture. Good ones aren't characterized by not rupturing; they're characterized by good repair. Right. So, so we have to survive it, you know. Um, talk about the things that cause the rupture, uh, learn about it, do good repair, reestablish safety, reestablish a sense of connection. Um, but I might not know that that's actually the function of 
therapy when I'm coming in. I might be coming in because I'm lonely or I'm having trouble with work right. or so. Um, actually, maybe we should do a podcast. We could at least talk about it. How does one introduce, how does a therapist introduce the relational nature of therapy to somebody who's coming in because they want symptom reduction? Yeah, and the broader question of, which we get a lot of, which is how do I deal emotionally with the, uh, the, you know, a lot of our listeners will say, okay, I get it. Like in order for me to, you know, cure myself of my relational traumas, I have to um, have corrective experiences with my therapist. Right. But my God, it's just, it's so overwhelming. Oh, yeah, it's and I, 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 you know, I just can't, it's too much, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and I'm, and they did this one thing and I don't think they actually really like me. And I know that you keep saying that if you found a good one, you just got to keep believing and trust, but I don't, you know, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I get this feeling like they don't really care. And, and that tension between, do I have a terrible therapist or I don't know, is this related to what you're, what you're saying? It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. So the trick isn't, it's not to trust whether or not the therapist likes me. It's to trust that it's actually okay to go find out. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Tell me more about that. What's the distinction? Well, um, the thing is, is it's not, you're not seeking cognitive knowledge that my therapist likes me. You're seeking um, a sense of connection and safety because you're a human being and that's what you need in order to have a good life. So, so trusting that it's actually okay for you to be reflective of your experience of, of therapists, that it's okay to talk about your relationship and it's okay to ask, or it's okay to express the need to be loved, to be cared for, to be appreciated, to be, um, liked is natural. But what if the therapist doesn't actually care the way that they worry yeah. and they, and they bump up against that right. reality? I know. So to speak. What an awful, scary place to be how awful that must be. And I'd say that um, that sort of puts a person at a crossroads because the therapist might have a view of treatment that doesn't have to do with um, um, thinking about things relationally. You know, like you said, maybe they're a person who sort of thinks about things in terms of symptom reduction, reduction, like treating panic. Right. So, so, so it might be that it's a poorness of fit. If you're, if you're seeking to have a corrective experience, then, being with a therapist who doesn't have a relational uh, a relational um, orientation might be a bad fit. It doesn't mean that you're wrong to ask. It means you've been really brave and you've checked. And you might be discovering, oh, okay, well, you know, you're you're okay person, but this is you 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 don't do what I need or. Or, um, and it would scare the hell out of anybody. It's like, oh, my therapist, they, they actually don't think about things that way. They don't think about caring about me. And, oh, God, I mean, that would be like gravity just stopped and I'm floating around like all like out of, out of control. Like, so, um, maybe trusting that that's, that it's normal to have the need is really the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Easier said than done, right? Oh, my God. Easier said than done. It's scary with a therapist that is relationally oriented and welcomes the question. Have you ever blown out with a borderline client? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Yeah, I make mistakes, man. Even though you're an expert and know it well and specialize in it. Yeah, for the same reasons. I go too fast or I miss something. 
um, yeah, of course. I, I don't think, um, it's sad to say, but I don't think that it is possible not to. Yeah. It's sometime over the course of career to blow out with clients. Yeah. I'd say less, I'm less vulnerable to that. I'm not invulnerable to it, but I'm less vulnerable than I was 15 years ago. Yeah. Why? Training. Yeah. What, and what, maturity and wisdom and, you know, my own experience of therapy and, yeah. um, the thing I learned I learned how to get out of the cesspool of judgment. Like I grew up in it. I, I was trained in it. My early learning experiences were, um, had this tinge and the thing, I think the thing that I've learned that I most cherish having learned is that it's a very good and okay thing to look at people with compassion. And if I, if I do that, I probably do an okay. Yeah. And finding that compassion. Yeah. Right. Finding the fast road to compassion. Right. When I was young, I was in therapy and I said to my therapist, because I was lonely and I, I was single and I was mostly single throughout my youth, uh, throughout most of my life, actually. Um, uh, and I was saying to my um, counselor something about, you know, how it's stupid or bad or wrong or cheesy or um, incorrect, dishonorable to use the personals ads in the local paper to find people to date to find available people right and she challenged it and i didn't know like that that was okay i i just it's i was just narrow i just didn't have much experience and i needed somebody to be kind to me but also to point out well actually it's just a way to solve a problem bob and it's like a gajillion experiences of my eyes opened that have led me to a place where i'm much 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 softer Softer. Yes. What do you mean? Um, that when I look at people, when I pay attention to people, that I look at them through the lens of care and compassion and seeing how what they're saying to me makes sense, not seeing how it doesn't make sense, not seeing how it's symptomatic of, say, borderline personality disorder, but it's a piece of uh, their experience in life. And, and it's not to be pathologized. It's to be understood properly and in context, which necessitates and also commands compassion because when you really get somebody when you really understand something compassion is just a natural side effect yeah i'm glad you pointed that out because i was going to say that is that when you really understand then compassion just happens because you're a human being yeah um and the lack of compassion prior to seeing it quote-unquote accurately is also natural too because if you see it in a way that um it it doesn't lend itself to compassion, then you're not going to be very compassionate. No. Um, but if you see it in a way that does, then it does. Yeah, because the um, – and, and I'm frequently harping on this because I'm frequently harping on the idea of compassion. And I feel like sometimes the message is like, well, just be compassionate. You know, just, just, yeah, be, right, just right. be loving, just right. be caring. Right. Um, and – that's actually impossible to do. It is. Um, and it doesn't come across it's right. It's fake. Yeah. Like, I actually know uh, a therapist who, who does this uh, years ago. She, she, she popped it in my head as we were talking about this, is she was one of those people who had deep anger towards other people, mm-hmm. uh, probably, you know, from her own childhood, who knows. Mm-hmm. But, she, but she acted very compassionate. Now, God bless her because at least she probably did effectively, you know, help people by right. at least 
being convincingly compassionate. And maybe she was able to access some warmth towards right. people with, you know, acting as is, as they say. Yeah, right. Um, but I could tell, and it would come out, yeah. that she had tremendous aggression and hostility towards other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, oh, like, because if you just met her, you'd be like, man, she is the most nicest, compassionate, uh-huh. yeah. um, you know, soft, uh-huh. like no one comes close to her. Wow. And then you experience her, you know, in more ways than yeah. that and more her, your true self kind of comes out. You're like, oh, she is hiding behind uh-huh. a veil. Uh-huh. And and her her compassion, I never really quite understood. Um, it all, I, The way I interpreted it in the beginning was that it was like so much love and compassion right. that I, but I didn't, my heart didn't feel right, right. about it. My yeah. body didn't feel right, right about it. And so I was like, well, it just must be, I'm not used to so much love, you yeah. know, right. directed at me and other people. It's just cause I'm socialized to like not appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So in my head, I would do this little acrobatics to go no this is this is good stop it kirk you know you're this is your problem not not hers because how can you fault someone for being super nice right and then you see the real person you're like oh Uh i know why because i detected the hostility from day one right and it was always there and it was just but you know this screaming, angry, multi-fanged human being was behind this extremely, you know, thin veil of like fake compassion. Yeah. Now, again, God bless her because of the trouble she's been through, th- yeah. and she's figured out a way to, I don't know, have a life. Yeah. Um. But there are, and that was, shall we say, more pathological. But but there are other, uh, for you know, everyone that doesn't necessarily have that deep anger and aggression. We don't just act compassionate. We don't just like put on a compassionate yeah. face. Yes. yes. Um, the and if you're having trouble again, as Bob says, you have to p- have a paradigm shift in how you see people. And I don't use that that phrase paradigm shift lightly. It is a massive brain switch. Yeah. That w- and it takes a lot of experience and time and thought and discourse and experience to really switch your brain over from the one you've been uh, taught over, you know, your entire lifetime. It, it's a it's a very distinctive shift in who you are as a human being Yeah. to the point now where I can't look at a single hated human being in the media and not see the human behind that veil of whatever, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, Charlie Manson, not to lump them together, but, you know, everyone who anyone's supposed to hate. Yeah. I can see the human behind. Uh, I don't, with Charlie Manson, I'm not going to say, yay, go for it, kill people or be a horrible person. You might not even like him. Yeah. But I have compassion for him, uh, truly. And yeah. it's not fake and it's not a joke. It yeah. is, it is true. It's like, oh man, my heart breaks for that person. Not because I'm a better human being, but because I've had a paradigm shift in how I see human beings. And when I have that, the compassion just comes out, even yeah. if I don't necessarily want to have that compassion. Right. So the trick, I'd say the trick is if I don't have compassion, can I have compassion for the stone in my heart? That's really hard to do. But um, what do you mean? 
you know, like if I have a prejudice, if I have some kind of mm, resistance, some kind of anger towards or hatred of the thing, whatever the thing is or the person, um, then the idea isn't to just like put on a happy face. The idea is perhaps to look at what's happening for me as I'm encountering this situation or this person, what's happening inside me and to look at that with an, uh, an attempt to understand it and with the faith that whatever it is, it isn't a bad thing. Like it's, it just is. And so, um, uh, but only through, I think for me anyways, only through understanding my own prejudices, do I actually come to a place of openness to other people, to the other thing that's foreign to me or, you know, unfamiliar to me or whatever. The stone in your heart is the resistance or the... Yeah, like the anger or the bitterness that I have or the resentment I have. Yeah. Can I have a compassionate attitude towards self? That is not easy. Interesting. Right. So to a part of compassion or the paradigm shift is yeah. to maybe first have compassion for what we've been through. Right. And say, well, I have good reason to be a little jaded or I have good reason to be a little hesitant or triggered by people. Right. That I'm triggered. Oh, this is scaring me. This is filling me with shame. This is having this impact on me. Oh, what's the impact? Can I be interested and curious about that? Yeah. yeah. And can I get compassion from other people as well? I mean, oh um, yeah. You right. know, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to take care of me. Right. But I'm also going to get care from other people. Right. And once I get that care, yeah. then it's easier for me to, see other people for the humans that they are. Yeah. 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 I like that. For me, it's quite a switch from my, um, lifelong habitual righteous indignation, which is a very satisfying, but lonely and empty place to live. Interesting. And I'm trying to think if, if I've experienced that side of you that I, I guess, uh, God, I hope not. <laughs> I, I guess I have, oh, I mean, shit. you know, we've been through a lot Yeah, that's true. and I, and I haven't framed it though in that way. Yeah. But yeah, there there have been very occasional moments over our twenty five years where, mm. um, n- not well, not towards me. Uh, no, I don't recall feeling that way towards you. Yeah, but towards other people, and yeah, that righteous indignation. Yeah, um, mm. that I would. I mean, I <laughs> I don't know if you want to get into this or in the patriots. I'm not going to go into specifics, but um, <laughs> but. Have we talked about this podcast before where there was a moment when I was like, I, I, I thought you were so wrongheaded and I pointed that out thinking that you were going to say to me, yeah, Kirk, you're probably right. And you were like, you got really angry at me. Do you remember this moment? No. What was it about? Do you remember? <sighs> well. Was it, was it work or personal? Personal. Oh, in our shit. friend group. In our friend group. And this would this would have been like 20 years ago. Wow. And I think, you know, in my head, we were in a... Par- oh, now I remember. We were in a parking lot in Northgate, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken. Boy, I don't, I don't remember the particular of that, but I remember this incident. Okay. And I, in my head, uh, have always had respect for your self-awareness and your intelligence and <laughs> we weren't in a parking lot in Northgate. I remember where we were. Oh, where were we? I ain't talking about oh. that. <laughs> well, we were somewhere and were we outside? Uh, oh, okay. Well, anyway, we were talking. Oh and, yeah, we were. Oh, we, we, we were. were in your car. Oh, okay. Yeah. Were we in Northgate? <laughs> uh, we were in Crown Hill. Uh, oh, okay. And 
I was, uh, and you were railing about oh, something. Oh, yeah, I was. You were very upset. Yes. And, and I, because I was like, okay, I get it on some level, but geez, like you're taking a little far. Yeah. And I didn't realize this was a sore subject for you in general, not just this particular thing. Yeah. And so I said something to the effect of, well, okay, but, you know, I had some sort of but thing to it. Yeah. And you got real angry at me. Uh, not like terribly. I, it was immediately clear to me that, oh, this is a bigger issue for him than I had realized. But the way you came across oh, sure. was... Um, Probably. you know, very sure of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Like it wasn't, there was no ambiguity. It was like, oh, no, 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 Kirk, you, and you even used clinical language in, in the, oh, in your God, argument. That's just awful. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember the clinical language that you used? No. Do you want me to say? Sure. Uh, basically, I think you were talking about triangulation, if I'm not mistaken. And you were saying, well, um, you know, it, it's something. I'm sorry to put you through this. That's okay. But you said something like, um, "Oh, I remember." What? I mean, I don't remember what. Go ahead, keep going. Do you know the metaphor you used? Offense, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. Oh, you do remember. Yeah. Um, you know that conversation. I might have acted that way, but I took it to heart and I thought about what you told me oh. for a long time. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Years. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. What was the what was the message that I was telling you? Fix it. Get off your high horse. Oh. Well, I hope it wasn't terrible what I was saying. No, actually it was important and I was still defensive. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and you know, at the time I and still do, but now I understand what you've been through in your life. And have a much deeper sense of the the trigger recovery cycle for you. Yeah. You always recover from every trigger that you've been through. Yeah. But, and I have a much more, you know, I have a greater sense of that now. Yeah. And so when I've seen you, you know, triggered since that point, I'd be like, well, he'll recover, but right now he's triggered. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But back then I didn't have a sense that you had that vulnerability and, mm. and that, or that those were the triggers that you particularly had or something. And, yeah. and so I just sort of trounced forward, like, well, come on, Bob, wake up, you know, da, da, da. And I was like, oh boy, like, I didn't know this was that sensitive to him. And oh, I, remember, yeah. I remember being right. quite like regretful of that. Idea. Oh, I, I, I remember thinking, Kirk, just listen to him. Just hear him you, out. Like, you did not say anything unkind to me. You uh, were just direct with what you thought I should do. You weren't. You were right. I don't actually know if I ever did it, but I thought about it for years. I don't remember what I told you directly to you do. You said, go apologize. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I do remember that. Yeah. 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 So my my life is replete with moments of that kind of brittleness. Yeah. And um, I feel bad about it. I don't feel like ashamed of it. I feel sad yeah. that it's that way. And it always seems to me it's anger first. It's always anger first. Of course. Yeah. And um, I strive very hard to be softer, not to be um, fake compassion, not to be a nice, nice person. Um, and I fail a lot of the time. I don't feel, I feel okay about that. Yeah, totally, dude. I mean, 
uh, you've, you know, been through a lot. One, two, you, if anyone deserves grace, it's you for Thank you. the amount of um, work that you've done yeah. to um, do what's right for everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and everyone loves you. Mm-hmm. Even the people we're talking about mm-hmm. still love you. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, in the end, people see the true Bob, which is a good person who mm. is easily loved, I guess. Is Thanks. The, the phrase I'll use, but I like softer a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that I'm softer. I say to Colleen, when I've had a really good day at work, I, I say I was soft and sharp, meaning I was on my game. I was observant. I was active, uh, in the ways I want to be and need to be active, but I was also very soft, very accepting, um, relatively calm, um, resisting nothing, you know, soft and sharp. It's a good day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think your traumas made you a better person? Ah, what a great thing. You know what David Whalen says? David Whalen is a psychologist down California way, and he gives this talk about self a therapist. I probably have said it here before. He says, I learned all my clinical skills when I was six at the knee of my mom. I learned all my skills when I was a kid. But not just skills, but like your love for humans. No, I don't. No? No. No, I don't think it has. In fact, if anything, it's inhibited. Your moral goodness as a human. You mean, are you asking me, do I think that the shit I went through as a kid made me um, have a better moral compass? Uh, Not just a compass, but actual dedication to the moral goodness of humans. Yes and no. Um, I think some of my moral compass comes out of shame, whereas I think uh, uh, values can come out of love and care. And they don't have to come out of shame. I think, you know, you say this and, and I'm always like, God, really? Like, you know, that your moral goodness comes out of shame. Shame about myself. Not, yeah. Not I, shame like uh, some other way. Like, uh, you better be a good person or right. no one's going to love you. Right. Um, and I get that, but I don't feel it. You know you what don't I mean? feel what? I don't. It doesn't. And maybe you're good at tricking me, but your <laughs> your moral goodness is so... Uh, obvious and non-complicated. Oh, I agree. I agree. And can't all, even a majority of it come from shame. It must come from a, from your heart, from a good place. Well, you know, there's that, um, who's that guy, Gerald Corey, who does the stuff with the wounded healer stuff. You know, I believe that. I believe that. But I got to tell you, sometimes I wonder what would have been like if I hadn't grown up the way I did. Totally. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm not saying no, look no. on the bright side. No, or, no. You're definitely not saying or that. Or I'm glad you went through it or something. But yeah. it, I just, I, I see this a lot. You know, we uh, on the podcast will have listener Liza. I don't know if you've listened to those episodes, but because you don't listen to the podcast, do you? I did on I did over the weekend. I listened to uh, one we did a, a month ago. Oh, okay, yeah. but Colleen, your your wife listens. Yeah, she she said, "Do you want to put it on?" I'm like, "Okay." Uh, Liza 
has been through a lot and she's a listener and, yeah. and, and we, we've talked with, uh, she has dissociative identity disorder oh, wow. and has been through tremendous mm. traumas throughout her life mm. and really just some of the most horrific sorts of human beings she's been in contact with. And she comes across inspirational to people to mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. but to listeners too a lot of emails from listeners being like oh my god that you know liza she's just so inspirational you know and and i think that you know i think that there's some something to that because i see i see that in you too and i and i know the listeners do that i it just makes me wonder if you had grown up with say, you know, 5% of the traumas you went through, <laughs> if you would have as much moral good to the planet, um, uh, I just wonder. I don't know. Because I could see a world in which you were you worked at Microsoft, and there's nothing wrong with people who work at Microsoft, no, but nothing. the moral good you give to the planet as compared to the average worker. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I'm grateful about that. Yeah. yeah. And, and and it has to be related to the horrific stuff you went through as a kid. I, I agree. I agree. Um, but you never have empathy until you've... I don't know what it's like to eat shit unless I've eaten shit. So yeah. you can't have empathy without experience. Yeah. So... And maybe you would have been, you maybe. know, maybe. But probably not. Probably, yeah. probably not. Even if I'd still chosen this as a field... I would come at it from a different place. <laughs> I dated somebody years ago, and she said, I can't stand be around people that have that light in their eyes still. <laughs> I think she was talking about folks that had not been touched by pain. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I'll talk on behalf of the listeners and say that the idea that your moral goodness is somehow in your mind not significant or from a place of shame doesn't seem fair unless again you're okay. really good at, at at tricking everyone into believing that your fake compassion is real hmm. um uh, i suspect that your traumas have something to do with the way you see your compassion hmm. and your moral goodness there's something sort of resistant um, blind spots eh? about uh, that idea for you of just like, well, I can't, I can't, I can't allow a true self recognition of goodness to pass by without <laughs> without chopping it up. Oh man, I do that huh? somehow. Okay, all right, I hear it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Thanks. and you know, not silver lining, but just like you know, the path of wisdom. Yeah. Right. Uh, you've 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 had one. Yeah, yeah. Patron McKella says, "I'm entering my third and final year in graduate school Yay. to become a therapist." All right. One thing I consistently struggle with is the conceptualization of cases. My my professor has told me many times that everything a client talks about is related in sessions, but I feel as though I often miss the link. For example, one client saw me for grief counseling from the death of his best friend, but often wanted to talk about politics. My professor would tell me that these topics are related, and I just didn't understand. 
Do you have any tips or books or anything that I could utilize to better conceptualize cases to be able to recognize links and patterns for my clients? Bob, what do you think? I think you're going to answer this one. I'm not going to have anything to say. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, not that I don't understand my own cases, um, though actually I did want to uh, run something by you after uh. the thing. Um, but I can't talk about case conceptualization in a very articulate way. Oh. Well, but the idea of everything your client says is relevant to the primary psychological issue. No, I, I can't. I can't agree with that. I mean, um, it. I think that if I'm listening to the patron, what what they're saying is um, the person came for grief and ended up talking about politics, and I didn't see a link. And there might not be a direct link between grief and and the urge to talk about politics, but there's something that sets that person down that road, wherein their stated reason for being there, grief grief counseling, isn't what they actually use the time for. And that's worth understanding. Like, okay, if I'm not talking about grief, what's making me talk about politics? Good, yeah. And this is kind of a free associative psychoanalytic uh, idea. The idea that, um, you know, if a client is right. talking about something that we think aren't related, right. um, it, it, it is somehow whether you just, you just, as a, as a analyst, you might not know exactly why yet or something. Right. Um, my cat is still meowing. Um, your cat is consulting. Yeah. But when I pet her from my chair, she starts to purr and she quiets down. <laughs> Um, uh, but the idea that I'm guessing that either the professor is saying, or at least the way it comes across is that, um, it, this sort of, everything is symbolic of the thing. I don't know. I don't put it into words, but yeah. is, is a little, I don't, I don't believe that you yeah. could, you can make a case for that, but I, I don't, I don't believe that. That'd be like saying the fact that. I even included this email uh, in this podcast has something to do with my own personal right. struggles or something like that old belief that if your client is late, then that's they're trying to communicate something to you. It has some meaning. Sometimes people are late, especially in our town. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they're just late, you yeah. know, and, you know, even Freud, right, said sometimes cigar is just a cigar. Yeah. And and so I, I think maybe that's what you're butting up against. But to get to Bob's point of just like. Okay, they came in to talk about grief. Now they're talking about politics. How do we conceptualize what this client is actually, you know, the humanistic notion of and the interpersonal psychodynamic notion to some extent of clients come to therapy sometimes not for conscious reasons. Yeah. And so the the client might be coming to therapy not for grief particularly and not for politics particularly, but to be validated or to have a good relationship with someone or to, you know, have a corrective experience around talking about politics and not having it go badly or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it might not be a stated goal of therapy. They might, oh, no, I'm here to talk about grief because my mom died, you know. Right. But anyway, getting back to Donald Trump, and right. you know. And so uh, there might be this third idea um, as to what the client is there for and paying attention to that is is you know, very, very much relevant. Um, and I think about that all the time, yeah. particularly in the beginning of therapy with, with clients, because the vast majority of clients, uh, if not everyone really comes to therapy, not for the reason why they're really there. No. You know, as an example, a couple will come to me because they believe their partner's fucked up. You oh, know? right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like my, 
my and maybe both of them actually even contend that the husband is problematic in some oh, way. Oh yeah, I've had or that. Whatever, you know. Right. But um that's not really why they're there. No. Uh what they're there for is perhaps for the very first time to experience uh, attachment security. Yeah. And they you know, they don't sit down on my couch. They always say we need to work on communication. That's what they oh, say. Communication, the yeah. big C. Yeah. But then which is which is true, but it's it's just doesn't really fully encapsulate no. uh, everything. Yeah. So, so you know, we'll say that. But yeah, you know, I've I've seen you know people uh, do that kind of thing. Anyway, so if you want to talk about a case, I feel like we should adjourn now and then talk about that because we don't have that much time beyond that. Um, oh, so okay. we will uh, have you back on the podcast to answer these other emails, of which there are many, and there's some news articles I want to go over with you. Oh. But let's do that in a couple of weeks. What do you say, Bob? Sounds good. Thanks for joining us out there. Uh, let us know what you think. And if you want to email, do you mind if people email you directly? That's yeah, fine. Oh, so what's your email? Oh, uh, bob at bobgettle.com. So email Bob directly if you want to. Yeah. But also if you email me and you say, please send this to Bob, I'll forward it yeah. to Bob. It's pretty easy for me to do. Um, if you comment below, like on YouTube or Patreon or something, uh, neither of us might see that. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't ever see it. Yeah, so uh, you have to go to our website, go to the Contact Us page, fill out the form, and um, yeah, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, for you frequent emailers, I recommend bookmarking it or something. <laughs> um, and it might be below in the description as well if you, if you click on that anyway. I want everyone out there to uh, care about themselves truly. Um. You know, we all deserve grace and love and compassion and self-compassion. And we all deserve to truly take in the compliments of other people. Uh, because uh, people aren't usually lying about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> And I need to take that advice, too. Um, sure. You know, if, if I took that advice, my own advice, or if I was able to somehow uh, do that easily, um, I wouldn't have such thin skin when it came to bad comments on, on YouTube. <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> the bad stuff's easier to believe, especially if you're not good at believing the good stuff. Right. If I truly believed the good stuff, I'd yeah. be like, well, one out of 100 yeah, people right. or whatever. But, man, it's just like... People say nice things, and you're just kind of like, yeah, okay, you know, you're being polite. Mm. And I'm, you know, it's good for you that you see that. You don't really know how terrible I really am on the inside mm. or something. So, you know, it, it begins with a lot of things, but I think it, it, it also begins with, you know, just really trying to let things in. You know, I yeah. compliment my wife, uh, and she'll be like, um, you know, sh sh there's always some kind of, quip that she'll shoot back with. Does Colleen accept your compliments? Not easily. Yeah. Um, one, it's just frustrating because it's just like, yeah. I, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna waste my energy yeah. complimenting someone for them just to put themselves yeah. down. You give a gift, you want someone to say thank you. Yeah, just, uh, just please let 1% of this in because yeah. I want you to know this right. about yourself. Right. You know, right. at least know that I see you this way or something. Yeah. And, uh, but it's vulnerable. And it, it is. It, yeah. it raises all these other questions of just like, 
well, wait, so I'm going to start depending on other people to, mm. to make me feel good? Like, that's scary. We're having a case conceptualization of what it is to accept a compliment. Yeah, so I'm just going to push back on this. Yeah. My policy is I either don't think about it or, you know what, I'm kind of a piece of shit, and mm. I've accepted that. Mm. Don't <laughs> work with I'm, my world. <laughs> I'm, I'm ugly. I, my body isn't right. Uh, I say stupid things. I've, I've already established that. I, I, I know that to be true. Your compliment challenges that and opens me up to the idea that maybe I'm not that, which is is kind of a scary world to be in sometimes, right. you know. Um, but man, you know, we just it, we all just deserve that. You know, it's just terrible that it makes me tear up a little bit to think about mm. all the pain that everyone's in, you know, around themselves, you know. And and you know, I always try to say, uh, it's not that shame is bad it's that we overuse it yeah if you run over a puppy on purpose you should be ashamed of yourself that's rejectable yeah if you murdered someone in cold blood you should be ashamed of yourself if you steal something for no good reason you know from someone else yeah you should feel a little shame but to feel shame for your body yeah or feel shame because you said something stupid at a party last night that didn't go over well. You tried, you made, a, you made a dumb joke or something. Yeah. Or to feel shame that, um, I don't know, you created something and people didn't really like it, or you were giving it your best shot and it wasn't received quite right. Right. Um, it it just it just breaks the heart, you know. That is it's just universal. And and the to accept a compliment is somehow narcissistic or something. Yeah. Right. That's um, the fear. You're shamed for accepting. You're shamed for not feeling shame, <laughs> I guess. Uh, so, re, you know, truly, please take care of yourself out there and, and uh, you know, l- allow others to take care of you. Um, that's, you know, it's because we really do deserve that. Indeed. Yeah, we do. 